0: Evolve over the course of just a track. Not because I really need to, but cause mom encouraged that. An ambition built for bono till contrition counted fact. With dissolated rhymes embedded in my stomach track. Wack whack. I think tonight I'll feed a timeless
1: Welcome to the Inside the Boards Podcast. The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so that you can study smarter, not harder and succeed in medical school. I'm your host Patrick Beeman. Today I have uh, Richard Jovini and Yoon Chu from the USMLE RX question bank on the program to kind of discuss a little bit about the first aid line of products as well as uh, offer some advice for students who are preparing for the boards. Uh, so welcome guys, thanks for uh, joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank no you problem. so
2: much for having us Patrick.
1: My pleasure. So each of the podcasts that we have, we like to take time to kind of go over at least something didactic. And for this week, I took a sample from the 2016 USMLE Bulletin. So I'm just going to go ahead and read that and then we can maybe dissect it and uh, talk a little bit about it. How's that sound?
2: Sounds great.
0: Sounds good.
1: So here's the stem. Drug X applied to a nerve axon decreases the duration of the action potential without affecting the resting potential or peak amplitude of the action potential. Which of the following is the most likely mechanism of action of drug X? A block of voltage dependent sodium permeability, B decrease in the rate of sodium inactivation, C decrease in voltage dependent sodium permeability, D, increase in the rate of voltage-dependent changes in potassium permeability. Or E, inhibition of the sodium-potassium pump. So I guess I would ask you, if you hear this question, it's probably a little more difficult, but if you were reading this question, either one of you, how would you approach it as a student?
2: Sure. So, um, when we think of a question and we, we when we want to dissect it a little bit, um, the first thing we looked at is what we call the stem. And that's really, um, the background given in the question itself. And so what a lot of students don't realize is that in the USMLE or NDME questions, when they are written, there are specific components to a question. So the stem for this part would be, quote, drug X applied to a nerve axon decreases the duration um, of the action potential and so on. And then the question actually asks, the what's called the lead-in, which is the actual question itself. And in this case, it is, quote, which of the following is the most likely mechanism of action of drug X? And so um, just taking a step back without even thinking about what the answer is and um, thinking about what the components of the question are, um, you realize that this question never reveals to you or asks you what the dra- drug actually is. And what it wants to know is the mechanism, not just the mechanism, but they specifically say the mechanism of action. So where does the drug X act? And so there are several things that ask the student reader to think through. It's what we call a multi-step question. It doesn't matter what the drug is. We're interested in how it acts and where it acts. So we know that the location is a nerve axon. We know what the effect of the drug is, which is it decreases the duration of the action potential. And we also know what it does not do. And and that is actually key to the question. So here it does not affect the resting potential or the peak amplitude of the action potential. So in order for a student to really answer the question, they need to know what contributes to determining the resting potential um, of a neuron— And what determines uh, the peak amplitude of the action potential? So what causes the rise in the action potential? What causes the peak? And what causes that uh, decay in the hyperpolarization phase? And so those are actually um, reading, if you read between the lines of a question, what is required for a uh, medical student's knowledge to answer the question? The student doesn't have to be an expert in neurology or uh, neuroscience, but they do need to know what the question actually is asking them. And so that's how I would begin to dissect the question.
1: Those are excellent points. So I guess, would you say it's fair that you could say that the surface or prima facie lead-in or interrogatory may not actually be exactly what's being asked, or maybe just taking the face value isn't perhaps the best approach to multiple choice questions. You said, what is the question really asking? And in my mind, that sort of implies a background there.
2: I think that's often the case. Um, I think the majority of the questions um, for the board actually will be pretty direct. Like what you begin reading, you kind of know what organ system or discipline that question falls in. So automatically in the back of your brain, you start thinking in a categorical method and start thinking of that specific organ system and discipline. Um, but there's a subset of questions where by the time you finish reading the STEM and reach the lead-in, it sometimes can take a complete turn and ask you uh, something not actually related to the organ system or the discipline. So it requires a student to really carefully read the question uh, the background in its entirety, and then carefully read the question itself.
1: Okay. And what are your thoughts on this, uh, Richard?
0: Uh, very similar to what Yoon was saying. Uh, I, I had a professor tell me once, you know, don't answer a question based on what you think the question is asking. Uh, actually read what the question is uh, telling you. So in this question right here, uh, like you and had mentioned, you know you got to read the the lead in, and w- when you look at the actual the stem, you have to kind of be an extractor of knowledge, uh, so so to speak. So this question, after you read it, you realize it's just testing you on definitions. So you have to know what a resting p- potential is, and what dictates that. What what's a peak amplitude, and what di- dictates that, and also what the action potential. So if you understand all three of those concepts, then you can kind of eliminate the answer choices based on uh, knowing definitions.
1: So let me ask you this then, why doesn't the uh, USMLE, Comlex, uh, all these sort of question writing bodies, why don't they just ask us what defines the duration of an action potential?
0: They want to make it more practical. So for instance, if you're giving a drug, you should know what the mechanism, mechanism of action is based on underlying principles. It would be useless for a doctor to know that, oh, um, an action potential is this, like that's not, you have to kind of apply your knowledge.
1: Okay.
2: Exactly. And also to add to that, what the board does and what a lot of our studying as medical students do is prepare us to be doctors. So that's the bottom line. And it teaches us not to think of question-answer, so black and white and then um, cause and effect. But it really teaches us, um, when we start as students, to think in categories. So you notice that if the question asks, uh, what does uh, drug X do? Or, um, you know, what is an action potential? What is the duration of an action potential? Those are very black and white uh, one-step questions. When you become a physician, the way you're going to be thinking is if you see a patient and they need a medication that affects the action potential or the firing of, say, a nerve that controls a muscle, you need to be thinking in category. So, what drugs actually affect the resting membrane potential to either increase or decrease its firing probability? or what drug can affect the peak amplitude or doesn't affect the peak amplitude of an action potential. And there are a multitude of drugs out there that are going to be available for you to prescribe as a doctor. And so I think that's the key to the way the questions are written for the USMLE.
1: From my mind, if I were approaching this question as a former philosophy major who did the bare minimum (laughs) pre-med requirements to get into med school, I would look at all the science words and verbiage here and say to myself what is really being asked sort of along the lines of what Yoon said. And uh, I guess I would say really what this question boils down to in my own simplified words after I've dissected it myself would be which of the following answer choices decreases the duration of an action potential. That's the key point in this question. And with that being said, the primary determinant of the duration of an action potential, if, if I remember this correctly, is the voltage-dependent changes in potassium permeability.
0: That's exactly right. So the
1: answer is indeed D. Mm
0: -hmm. The uh,
1: mechanism of action of drug X in this question, decreasing the duration of the action potential without affecting the resting potential or the amplitude of that action potential is a increase in the rate of voltage dependent changes in potassium permeability. Correct. As the scientists in this group.
0: Another way um, to approach a question like this, like it's even like an arrow, arrow type question with uh, up or down kind of thing. You look at any answer choice that kind of goes against what's saying. So if you block the voltage-dependent uh, sodium uh, permeability, you know that that will change the peak amplitude. So that can't, be, that can't be correct. And then you can just do process of elimination to get down to – I think if you do that, you get down to D and E. And then you know that inhibition of sodium-potassium potassium pump just doesn't work for this question. So okay. you can get to get to D. So
1: I guess uh, I guess we can stick with this because it's an uh, interesting discussion here. But you say you go through the answer choices and and you feel like perhaps the two best candidate answers, the ones that are hardest to rule out by elimination are D and E. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In your experience, did you or have you (laughs) experienced test questions where you're like between two things very often?
2: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yep. Probably every single one of our listeners uh, will have experienced this, uh, if not multiple times while they're studying or even when they are taking the actual step one boards. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, um, I know that's uh, very nerve wracking, but I think that it's also a mark of a really high quality, well-written question is when you actually cannot pick out a single answer right away. And that's a question that really challenges us um, as learners.
1: Yeah. And I guess one piece of advice I would say for people um, I've spent now a good six or seven years uh, doing a lot of writing and editing USMLE and um, board style questions is pay particular attention during your study process to the times you picked the so-called most attractive distractor, because a good question writer is able to make one little turn of phrase or one little detail what the correct answer depends on, and if you can kind of figure out those times where you're picking that most attractive distractor um, rather than the correct answer, I think that that can be a very high-yield exercise if uh, one, for instance, kept a log of those things in a notebook or marked the questions in the USMLE-RX question bank for later review if they're using a USMLE-RX or a similar product. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I I definitely agree with you on, on that one. Um, I, I, how I look at it is, if I'm down to fifty fifty, I go for the least the, the one that's that's the least incorrect. So it's it's a kind of a double negative. You look at both both of them and see what are they trying to define, what they're trying to say, and then go from there. The one that's not telling, like the one that's um, not straying off the path so much, or you know, just kind of narrow it down to what what's different between the two questions, and then make a decision from there. And sometimes in in test mode with, with time constraints, it comes down to just, Blindly well, i guessing at 50-50 because yep. if you don't know, you just, you just don't know. So.
1: <laughs> I agree. And move on, right? Mm-hmm. That's
0: mm-hmm. it. Don't think back. <laughs> don't
1: dwell. Okay, so let's break it down in summary. Sodium has a relatively higher concentration in the extracellular compartment compared to the intracellular compartment, while potassium has a relatively lower concentration in the extracellular compartment compared to the intracellular compartment. The net effect is that the resting potential or the state at which the nerve or cell usually exists is in a more negative state. It's the influx of sodium from the outside to the inside of a cell that depolarizes it. And deactivation of the sodium influx and activation of potassium, causing potassium to sort of leak out of the cell, leads to a resetting or repolarization of the cell. Now, the amplitude of the action potential that's generated is due to how permeable the membrane is to allow sodium to get inside the cell. Hence, if you were to block the voltage-dependent sodium permeability, that is, like, decrease how much sodium gets inside, you would decrease how strong, or the amplitude, of the action potential. On the other hand, the outflow of potassium from inside the cell repolarizes or resets the cell, So blocking voltage-dependent sodium channel permeability would prevent that repolarization process. The net effect would be that any action potential that was generated would have a greater amplitude because the cell would have more positive ions on the inside of it, both sodium and potassium, and the duration would also increase because it would take longer for the neuron to reset. So I hope that makes sense. And that's kind of the breakdown in summary. It's uh, somewhat of an oversimplification. But when you're not looking at a, a textbook of uh, neurosciences, sometimes it's a little hard to conceptualize that. So. Let's move on from uh, the question dissection at this point. I'm really interested to hear both of your personal stories about medical school. I mean, you're both engaged in meaningful work that helps medical students. um, prepare for their boards and do well, what brought you to working for USMLE-RX?
2: So for myself, I am currently at Harvard Medical School and I trained in the MD-PhD program. And what brought me to USMLE-RX was when I was studying for the Step 1 boards, I used their question bank extensively. And before I found their question bank, I used their published book for which we are best known for, The First Aid for the USMLE. And I uh, really love the short, concise style of The First Aid book. And uh, to our knowledge, I think that almost every medical student who studies for the board uses it.
1: I'm sure medical school keeps you very, very busy, right? And if you tack tack on a PhD to that, um, you're doubly busy. So why why take extra time to uh, do this kind of work?
2: Well, I've always been interested in teaching and interested in the styles of teaching. So I think one of the challenges of teaching is actually coming up with good questions to uh, not test, but to, uh, I think, I like to think of it as a reinforcing the learning and teaching points for students. And so that's what attracted me to become first an author for USMLE-Rx. Uh, and where I worked uh, as an author with a much larger team, uh, revising and writing questions from scratch and then revising those questions. And then eventually becoming an editor, um, leading a team of my own, and now a senior editor and medical manager for the team. So it's been many years, I'd say probably five or six years total. And uh, but basically it was an inherent um, love for teaching.
0: Awesome. What about you, Richard? Very similar to what Yoon said, even since when I was a kid or a teenager, I've always had a passion for teaching others, whether it be, you know, tutoring my friends in high school and stuff like that. Uh, When I came to medical school, it was the same thing. Uh, Anytime I would, you know, finish a course, I would try to put together some review sessions in, in anatomy, biochemistry, and so on, and just try to give back. So after taking the USMLE, I just basically got involved with the company and I took it from there. For me, it's always been such a really rewarding experience just to, you know, give back Like I was in a student's shoes uh, just a few months ago kind of thing. So giving them advice or, you know, just kind of laying out a a path for them to follow is something that's been a great experience.
1: Awesome. So, Yoon, you used a lot of uh, USMLE-Rx as far as a question bank goes during your step one preparation, step two as well. That's right. Okay. What about you, uh, Richard? Did you uh, make use of the Rx question bank? Uh,
0: Yeah, extensively for both step one and step two.
1: Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about your general study schedule or approach um, when you were pre- preparing specifically for step one?
0: So when I say for step one, I studied actually with a friend, which I highly recommend because it keeps each other motivated during an intense uh, you know, one to three months of, of essay preparation. We've studied morning and all the way to the night. The biggest thing was, you know, getting through uh, first day of the textbook, going through the appropriate questions in the subject, making detailed notes and just uh, trying to read up on uh, as much as you can on each subject, because how the boards works is they can ask you anything about the subject. So the more well-versed you are in the subject, the better your chances of being prepared. And always just doing questions again and again, just to get practice.
1: Let me ask, when did you start using or incorporating first aid into your, uh, medical school experience?
0: I
2: started using first aid probably in my second year of medical school, but I really didn't dive into it in depth until I started studying for the boards. And so my study tactic and schedule uh, was very similar to what Richard just described. I also studied with a partner, mm-hmm. and I think that's really important because I think that the two challenges of um, studying for the boards are one, focus, and structure. And so a lot of board studying is self-driven. So you've got to be focused and self-motivated and having a partner really helps. And because it is self-driven, it is really uh, sometimes a challenge to have a structure to your studying. There's not somebody who already has a syllabus or a study schedule developed for you. And everybody's study uh, habits and styles are different. So you just have to find one that works best for you. And actually having a study partner can help you uh, solidify a study style that works best. And so I used it probably starting three months out from when I actually took the boards.
1: Okay. And what did that look like? Um, Three dedicated months? Or did you kind of just intersperse a little bit of board specific study with the classes that you had at the end of second year?
2: I would say probably two months uh, dedicated studying and then um, one month or um, beyond, you know, stepping back from that uh, timeline of taking classes and then in the spare time kind of consolidating my notes, summarizing the most important parts from the first uh, one and a half years in medical school and then studying on the side but not as seriously. But then I'd say probably two months solid studying. okay. yeah,
0: what about you, Richard? I used uh, first aid beginning of second year of medical school and just uh, more or less just got familiar with the book, like some high yield material and concepts that that were in it. And I just made sure that I knew what was lining up with my courses. And then um, for me, it was three months of dedicated uh, study, uh, studying, you know, morning, noon and night. That was pretty much just using first aid uh, along with the the question banks and just trying to consolidate as much information in a short time as possible.
1: If you had one to two weeks until your big test date, what would you be... Be doing with your time
0: Make sure you stay relaxed up until like you know the fir- the, fir- the last two weeks is always scary because you know as you're going through the material you think to, your- uh, to yourself that oh you know I can see this again or I can review this another time. And then around the two-week period, you start to say to yourself, there is no next time. This is going to be the last time I see it. So you got to stay relaxed during that that point. Definitely keep keep doing uh, questions. At this point, you should be reviewing rather than cramming. Maybe some last minute material, like, you know, some going over drugs and, and whatnot. And also just 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 keep the morale up. Definitely take time for yourself. Uh, relax that nighttime just to kind of keep your energy good before the exam. And I think the most important thing, which is easier said than done, is don't panic because, you know, Thousands and thousands of students have done this before, so you can do it too. So just keep a good attitude.
2: Right. And I would uh, absolutely agree. I would say that uh, if you're two weeks out, the first thing you should do is take a breather. One, look at things in the big picture. You know, think of how far you've come in your studying experience to prepare for the boards. I think for um, the majority of our listeners who are preparing for step one, this is probably most time they have dedicated to studying for a test. And um, it's a big test. It's step one boards. Um, I think that my advice for somebody two weeks out is fill in the gaps, reflect on what your weaknesses are still. So and by that, I mean specific topics, try to fill in the gaps and sit down and just learn those specific weaknesses um, to your knowledge. And that I think is the best way to prepare if you have two weeks left.
1: If you could go back and change one thing about the way you studied for step one specifically, what would it be?
2: So I thought about that a lot when I think back on the years um, when I've taken step one and step two. Uh, The one thing I would say to our listeners would be coming up with a, um, a structure. For your studying, be organized. And I know that those are very broad and perhaps vague concepts. But what I mean by structure or organization is, uh, as a personal example, when I first started studying, the, when you look at the first aid book, it's so thick, you want to flip through it and read it as fast as possible. But it's better really to not be as scattered. And to be honest, I was very scattered when I first started studying in my three months out from the boards. And so if I were to go back, I would sit down and focus on chapter by chapter. My biggest piece of advice for doing that is to start with a chapter in first aid or a organ system or discipline in medicine that you feel most comfortable with. And become solid in your knowledge in that area, and then move on to areas where you are less confident. It helps that way because you develop your confidence in studying. So I would build up my structure and organization and uh, that method
1: to to kind of increase the confidence at the beginning. You're saying
2: yes, that's right, and then also increase the um, complexity of the study topic.
1: I like it. I like it. All right. What about you, Richard?
0: Yeah, very similar to what Yoon said. It's uh, developing confidence. Um, a common pitfall for people is to tackle the hard stuff first. I know I did that, and you lose a lot of uh, momentum at the beginning because you get bogged down about the small things. But as Yoon said, you know, definitely uh, start with something very, very easy, very simple. That you know, you know that you know the topic very well. I would say in the middle, do the hard stuff and at the end, do do some more easy stuff because at the end, the, the burnout becomes really something that you, you can't fight. Like you, you tell yourself, I won't burn out, I won't burn out and then eventually you burn out kind of thing. In, in regards to anything else, uh, I would say anything and everything in the first state book is high yield. There's no low yield subject. That, that includes parasitology because I, I, I know <laughs> I, I got burned with that a little bit.
1: Got to watch those helmets.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah, so I remember going, going, going through it and being like, "Okay, yeah, I'll know a little bit about it." Then, sure enough, uh, I was expected to know a little bit more. So,
1: fair enough. All right, I like it. So, well, let's talk a little bit about maybe I don't know if it's fair to say, but maybe the the lesser known offerings from the first aid brand, uh the USMLE. Rx, Flashfax, First Aid Express, all those things. I'm, I'm, I'm sure 99% of uh, U.S. medical students, at least I've never met one, um, who didn't actually use a hard copy of First Aid. But not everyone's used U- USMLE Rx or some of the other things. So tell me a little bit about your QBank.
2: Sure. Um, actually, USMLERX, the question bank is, uh, what Richard and I are senior authors for. And we call it QMAX. And that's okay. the official, uh, name of our, uh, question bank. It is the uh, equivalent of, uh, what is now called UWorld. I know that they kind of are the leaders um, in the first go-to company for the official question bank. And uh, we actually started out probably five years ago lagging behind Kaplan's question bank. We now have surpassed them and are getting very close to UWorld. And the quality of our questions has been revised over and over again until they're really just solid and that they have multiple teaching points, not just in the question itself, but also in the explanation for the incorrect answers.
1: I will say just uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I actually worked on a um, step one project back in 2009 for about a year. And I, I remember one of the the big selling points that convinced me to get involved, too, was the, the focus on helping students explain why an answer was wrong. There's, in my mind, less value in just getting a question wrong and then uh, having an explanation of the correct one without being able to determine why exactly I picked E when the answer should have been D, for instance. Right. It's encouraging to, to hear that you guys are, are growing and uh, have done uh, so well over the past five years. Right. Is first aid then integrated within the entirety of uh, the QMAX product?
2: Oh, it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. So at, in, at the bottom um, of every single uh, question in the QMAX question bank, there is a reference to a first aid book page. And not mm-hmm. only a single page, but you can change the edition of the first aid that you have and find the exact page where that topic is covered.
1: That's smart. I like that.
2: Yes. And it is a direct link. And in addition to that, we, um. well, okay, I can hand it to Richard and have him add to this.
1: Yeah, let's hear it.
0: Oh, yeah. So as you were saying, it's, it's very integrated with the uh, fir- first aid book. So uh, if you do, let's say, a question on MS, there's going to be the subject there on different editions of first aid. So the student can actually follow along with, with the question.
1: How many uh, questions roughly do you guys have in your um, each of the products? Do you know offhand for the others?
2: Um, Uh, I know it for the question bank. Um, So for the Step 1 QMAX, we have at least 2,300 activated questions. We have in the background there, we have a set of inactivated questions that we are revising off-scene. So our number is always well over 2,000.
1: Is it similar with
0: QMAX Step 2 offering, do you know? That one, I think it's roughly around uh, 2,000. I I think it's like 1,800 to, to about 2,000.
2: Yes. Okay. We actually work very closely with the Step 2 team as well. Um, a lot of our authors and editors go on to also lead and participate in Step 2 as they themselves grow in medical school. We are actually expanding the Step 2 question bank as well, and there are a good number of questions there.
1: What are some of the advantages of uh, the QMAX? product over, say, UWorld or Kaplan or some of the other existing question banks out there?
2: One probably, I would say, is our almost real-time revision of questions to match what is actually going to be encountered by our students and users on the actual board exam.
1: Okay, give me an example.
2: So for an example is um, we're very transparent with our revision process. Our question bank is completely student driven. And a lot of our authors are people who just took the the board exam. So I think that is a huge advantage over our competitors, such as Kaplan and UWorld, where you're not really sure where the revisions come from, who writes these questions, are they student driven or not? Um, so we make it very transparent in our process.
1: So you you think it's fair to say and and this may be obvious but somebody who is freshly or more freshly taken step 1 is probably better suited and prepared to prepare others to do the same.
2: I absolutely think so. Yes. Yep.
1: And, of course, I know both uh, USMLE-Rx and um, all the existing products out there are not using remembered questions and fully comply with uh, the NBME and NBOME's um, irregular behavior standards. Right. Of course. But the value of being familiar with the style, presentation, and packaging, I guess, yep. of uh, the exam probably does... It probably does change to a certain degree each year. I mean, even just in May of 2016, uh, the NBME announced they're going to be reducing the blocks of questions down to no more than, I believe it's 40 each now. That's right. Which makes me a little jealous, but it also probably means the reason for that is the stems have gotten longer or there are more answer choices, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Yep. All right. So one advantage is your almost adaptive response to the current state of the USMLE. That's one pro Mm -hmm. for USMLE RX's product, the QMAX 1 question bank, correct? That's Mm -hmm. right. right. What's another one?
0: Youn was saying that uh, with our authors in uh, we always encourage them to kind of always improve our questions so so there's always uh, you know a good revision revision process that goes in whether it be uh, you know increasing uh, the stem length or is the question really confusing for students to take or even enhancing the, the question through like images tables and, and and even like a multimedia stem so when a student takes it, they're not just you know sitting there blandly reading text. That they get you know uh, good images to kind of stim- stimulate them when they're taking it, as well as other m- multimedia. So that could be another way that our bank really, really shines.
1: Are there particular subject areas that you think? The USMLE Qmax One Step Bank really shines in. I know you probably want to say they all are equally great. Yeah, but we we right.
0: strive to do that. Like just make all subjects equal with excellent teaching points.
1: Right. Okay. All right, that's fair.
2: I think maybe if I could add to that, Patrick, um, I think one part we particularly shine in is the area of multi-system questions or um, questions that test general principles. And what I mean by that is that um, a lot of those questions are multi-step questions. And for those um, listeners who are not as familiar with what a multi-step question uh, means, it means that you have to think analytically in multiple steps in order to be able to try to come to the answer. If the STEM describes a patient symptom, uh, understand the symptom, kind of be able to know the diagnosis, know the cause of the diagnosis, and then how to treat it and maybe the mechanism of the drug, et cetera, et cetera. So those are multiple steps. Yeah. So I would say that those really are our strengths. That's where we shine. And I think that's going to be the best way to kind of teach students uh, to become doctors because we become a clinician, you have to think in multiple steps.
1: That is so true. So very true. Can I ask, uh, without trying to describe your kind of like trade secrets or not or whatnot but how do you find authors how do you train authors
2: um i can briefly describe it i think a lot of our authors come to us Okay. Uh, because they use first aid, they reach out to us. We do have a uh, strict screening process for hiring the strongest candidates, and then once they are in our uh, become an author and become of our teams, we really, in a way, treasure them. So we try to nurture them um, so that they can eventually become leaders and um, train additional young authors. And that's really the process, just briefly, of what we do.
1: What about the other offerings like uh, Flash Facts and Express? Have you guys made use of those? Or are you familiar with, and can you comment on those product lines as well?
0: Well, uh, when, when I was a student uh, standing for step one, uh, the Flash Facts and Express videos weren't, uh, I, I think they are still like in, in the in the early stages. Incubation, yeah. Yeah, but uh, for instance, uh, Flash Facts, they, they almost uh, kind of work with, like uh, interactive flashcards. So the student okay. can, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's a really integrated process to get them to kind of well, learn the material. And uh, the Express videos is someone going over a concept that's p- uh, part of first aid and high yield for the boards and just in, in their own like kind of flavor, so to speak.
1: Why don't you uh, just give me an example then of QMax uh, step one questions and uh, let's go through it and kind of give the audience an idea of the style.
0: Sure. OK. Uh, so basically in this in this vignette right here, uh, the, the patient is on a particular drug. And, you know, over the course of a few days, she ends up having, uh, you know, uh, symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, and fever. She goes to the emergency room where uh, it's found that she has renal failure. And then patients worked up and then uh, patients uh, has an EKG. And the question was, uh, you know, which of the following changes is a physician checking for the patient's EKG? So you have uh, peak T waves, QT prolongation, SC uh, segment depression, T wave inversion, or U waves. So in this particular case, you know, you have to decipher that the the patient has renal failure. And through, you know, uh, renal failure, we know you get an increase in potassium. And eventually that can lead to uh, PT waves. So this is uh, kind of what Ewan was saying with the entire integration concepts that we use. You know, we can have something about renal failure, you know, common causes or what do you see under histology. But we took a step further by saying, OK, we assume, you know, this patient's going to have renal failure how will a patient look? So in this case, the student has to know that acute renal failure will lead to hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia will lead to T waves.
1: Okay. So, I mean, the way as, a question writer you might be approaching this topic um, would be to set up a vignette that talks about renal failure. And the way you set that up, though, doesn't mean you're done. You could really go in a number of directions of course, uh, in of course. terms of what you ask. And you could make it a one-step question and ask, perhaps, which of the following lab changes would you... expect and put on uh, one of the answer choices, like an elevated creatinine, for instance, along with some other options. But uh, the deeper layers or the more complexity, the multi-steps, as Yun had put it earlier, uh, really goes into preparing one to think clinically Mm -hmm. and to do well on the boards. And you're saying like this question is a good example of this in that, they don't even ask you what uh, with renal failure is associated, namely hyperkalemia. But even further, what <laughs> what is what is associated with hyperkalemia? Yeah from a EKG standpoint. I mean, that, that is what makes, I think, uh, standardized medical exams challenging. Mm-hmm. So, but please continue.
0: And that's what we always strive for uh, with, with QMAX is uh, getting a simple concept and then trying to let the student drive their own associations uh, with it. You know, for instance, even for this question, we could take a step further and say, okay, in renal failure, what else would the patient have? So we know, yeah, increase your BUN and then say, what other conditions or what other medications can cause elevated BUN? So that, that in effect can be a it's like a third or fourth order question. So those are the type of uh, things that we have to test for with our Q bank, just um, multi-layer thinking as we have to call it I mean that makes a lot of sense.
1: I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I think that the one of the challenges that people have when transitioning from taking their in-house medical school exams to studying and then, of course, taking the standardized ones, like the USMLE step one or or the shelf exams, is the fact that many medical school in-house exams Seem to kind of exist on the plane of a one step or maybe two step or two layer question, <laughs> but with uh, the step one especially, you're eight hours of multi multi uh, layered questions, one right after the other. So training oneself to think in that manner is is indispensable to doing well on the test, and not only the test but in life and medicine as well. But I just wanna I want to thank you guys for coming on the show and uh, giving your time and your sharing your personal experience with uh, studying and uh, the usmle suite of uh, products leave us a review on iTunes and send us a screenshot at info at Inside the Boards and you will be entered to win um, a one month subscription to a product of your choice from the kind folks at uh, usmle so uh, Richard Yoon thank you very much I appreciate it Music from today's show is brought to you by the band Say Anything. The track is Rum off their album... I don't think it is. Thanks to Max Bemis and Equal Vision Records for giving us permission to use it. You guys should check out sayanythingmusic.com for more. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Exam, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Exam, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of their respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of Inside the Boards the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.